Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 38. This week, we'll finish up the book of Daniel and cover Hosea, Joel, and Amos. We also have just this week and next week on the Old Testament, and then it's to the New Testament, so then you can celebrate. So as we left off with chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, let's pick up there. This chapter's message, chapter 7, is similar to chapter 2. In fact, chapter 2 and chapter 7 of Daniel provide us the same message, that four kingdoms must rule over the earth before Christ comes back to set up his kingdom. Chapter 2 looks at those kingdoms from the viewpoint of a statue, whereas here, chapter 7 looks at those kingdoms from the viewpoint of beasts. And those four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, as you move into chapter 8, Daniel receives another vision of the ram and the goat. And these animals are symbolic of the second and third kingdoms. So it seems that um, through his vision, he gets some more details about the Medo-Persian Empire as well as the Empire of Greece. That's in chapter 8. Then you move to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, the focus of the vision that Daniel receives is on the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Daniel knows that God has said that the Jewish people would only be in exile for 70 years, and that 70 years is almost here, according to Daniel's timeline. And so he's eager to see the Jewish people return to their homeland. So he undertakes a corporate confession of prayer on behalf of his people, asking God to restore them to their land. Now, did you catch that? God has already promised that the Jewish people would be returned to their land, But Daniel still prays for it anyway. You ever wonder why? Well, I think that Daniel understands that prayer is far more for us than it is for God. He understands that prayer is about developing a close relationship with God. And as Daniel is confessing corporately the sins of the people and their failure to obey God's commands, he is interrupted in mid-prayer by Gabriel. And Gabriel, the angel here, tells him that he has come to answer Daniel's request. And Gabriel rolls out the famous 77's prophecy for Daniel in the last part of chapter 9. This amazing and detailed prophecy gives a timetable to Daniel for when the people and their city would be fully restored in the future. This is not Daniel's near future, but during the end times of all humanity. Now, as you move to chapters 10 through 12 of Daniel, they all form one large vision. This vision happens two years after the vision that happened in chapter 9. And this vision, we're told, it concerns a great battle or a great conflict. Now, this is where the narrative gets interesting. Another angel tells Daniel that as soon as he sets his face to understand this vision of chapters 10 through 12, this angelic being was dispatched to help Daniel understand the vision. But during his time, I guess, from being dispatched to getting the message to Daniel, this angelic being was held up. Yes, it says he was held up. He was prevented. In fact, we're told that for 21 days, this angelic being was prevented from delivering this message to Daniel. Now, the reason for the holdup was that another angel, or prince as the text calls them, wanted to prevent this message from getting to Daniel. So, You have a good angelic being trying to deliver a message to Daniel, but that good angelic being is prevented by an evil one or a demonic being for a period of 21 days. Finally, the text tells us another good angelic being named Michael comes to the aid of this angelic being struggling to get his message through to Daniel. Together, these two good supernatural beings, they win the battle, so to speak, and the message is delivered to Daniel. So I think that our basic assumption that this message is a big deal is probably a right one. 
Because if it was fought over in the supernatural realm, then you can guarantee the message is extremely important. And the content of the message is what we find in chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. Now, the content is more prophecy about how the Jewish people would fare under the dominance of the third kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. During the days of the kingdom of Greece, years after Alexander the Great, a mighty king arises. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes, and he undertakes a major persecution of the Jewish people. But as part of the last chapter, or excuse me, as part of uh, the end of chapter 11 tells us, that the persecution and destruction that Antiochus will cause for the Jewish people on a local scale will be nothing like what the persecution and destruction that the Antichrist will be like on a global scale in the end times in the book of Revelation. So they're making a comparison here. What Antiochus did to the Jewish people during his days will be very much or similar to what the Antichrist does or will do to the Jewish people and the world during the end times. Now, Daniel chapter 12 instructs Daniel to seal up the prophecy. This means to preserve the prophecy, to protect it, so that generations later can read it and understand it and benefit from it. The wise person will realize that many of Daniel's prophecies have already come to pass in their lifetime. So the study of the book of Daniel in the centuries following the book's writing will be highly different than even it is today. Because today we can look back on history and see fulfillment of many of Daniel's prophecies. Whereas if we picked up Daniel's book a century after it was written, most of those prophecies had not been fulfilled. Now, even though Daniel and his people did not understand the book's prophecies as we do today, those prophecies did comfort them because it was assured them that God had a plan for them that he was working out, which all goes back to the main theme of Daniel, that God is sovereign and he is in control of all things. All right, well, we could spend much more time on the book of Daniel, uh, but maybe that'll be for another podcast of sorts. So let's go to the next book, which is the book of Hosea. A few things to pay attention to when reading through Hosea. First, understand that Hosea was the last prophetic voice to the people of Israel before the northern kingdom, before the ten tribes were taken into exile by the Assyrians. Second, the doctrine of sin is hit hard in the book of Hosea. What made the sins of the Israelites so great was the fact that they had sinned against light and love. The more light or revelation from God that people have, the greater is their responsibility. And of all the peoples on earth who enjoyed the most revelation from God, the nation of Israel was. But they chose darkness rather than light. Third, you can't read Hosea without seeing God's unending love for his people, and in a similar way, Christ's love for his church. Even despite the most heinous sins and the disciplines and judgments that can be brought because of those sins, God's love never ends. The book of Hosea is broken up into two major parts. Chapters 1 through 3, it's about the unfaithful wife, and chapters 4 through 14, which is about the unfaithful people. In chapter 1, we find that the first words that come to Hosea from God are not what we might expect. Hosea is commanded to marry a woman who was already involved in prostitution and who would also be unfaithful to Hosea during their marriage relationship. Hosea marries this woman named Gomer, and they have three children, and all three children are given names that would say something about God's relationship with Israel. Then in chapter 2, it seems that Gomer is tired of her relationship with Hosea and left him to go back to her life of immorality. Hosea actually continued to support his wife during the time that she had retreated back to her old ways. And this, of course, accurately parallels what God has done for Israel, prospering her when she was so deeply involved with other gods. Well, Gomer's ways came to an end as she was auctioned off as a slave. And at this point in chapter 3, 
Hosea is instructed to go buy her back and reinstate her as his wife, all of which he did. So this experience in the life of Hosea in chapters 1 through 3 was designed to show Israel's Israel how deep and unchanging God's love for them was. Hosea's relationship with his wife would become an illustration of God's love for Israel, even though she had been very unfaithful to him. It would also serve as the basis for Hosea's preaching ministry, wherein he attempts to call Israel back to God, which is the subject of the rest of the book. In chapters 4 through 14, Hosea turns to the nation of Israel and focuses on the charges that God brings against his people. Now, in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, we are given the three charges that God levels against his people. And as you read through the remainder of the book, these charges are further elaborated on or further explained. So, like a good writer, Hosea states the charges in the opening paragraph and then hammers in on each in more detail as the rest of the book unfolds. The three charges were these, no acknowledgement of God, no loyal love, and no faithfulness. So the first charge, no acknowledgement of God, is developed throughout the rest of the chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Hosea speaks to the false priests of Israel. He charges them with rejecting knowledge, and as a result, as a result, God would punish them and the people for their sins, because in rejecting the knowledge of God, the people turned to spiritual prostitution, thinking that these other gods and their worship of them would bring health and vitality and would satisfy them. But sadly, it just led to their ruin. The sins that the northern kingdom of Israel were committing were also the same ones that the southern kingdom of Judah was heavily involved in as well. But the tribe of Ephraim is singled out in the text. Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom, and it seems that she is the one who is most to blame and most heavily involved in idolatry. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 11, it states the plain, it states the judgment very plainly. The people of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment because they are determined to worship idols. I don't think it can be any clearer than that. Also, this idea of being crushed and broken are the exact words that Moses used to describe this very thing that would happen in Deuteronomy 28.33. So we can't say that they weren't warned because they were warned. The second charge against Israel is no loyal love towards God, and that's developed in chapter 6 through chapter 11, verse 11. In chapter 6, we find out that Israel comes to a place of repentance. However, they firmly believe that God's judgment will only last for a short time, and then they could go back to their previous ways. This highlights the nature of their false repentance, and God calls them on it by saying in verse 4 of chapter 6, for you love, for your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like the dew in the sunlight. Then in verse 6 of chapter 6, God says, I want you to show love, not to offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Take a minute and meditate on that verse. Wow, that's powerful. After you've done meditating on that verse, read the next verse, verse 7 of chapter 6. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. Like Adam, the first and typical man in an endless stream of human beings, the Israelites had violated God's loving directions, even though his blessing had been abundant on them. Ever since Adam, all people, including God's people, have dealt treacherously with God by trying to seize sovereignty from God because they doubted his love for them. Listen, friends, the more you know, God, the, excuse me, the more you love God, the more you get to know God, the easier it will be to trust him and to trust that he has your best interest at heart. Now, in chapter 7, we find that Israel, Israel's lack of love could be seen in the common people, in the rulers, and in Israel's relationships with other nations. Then you move to chapter 8, you find that Israel's lack of loyal love was directed towards God himself as they chose to ignore their covenant with God. 
They appointed kings without his consent. They made idols and altars in disobedience to his laws. They chose to forget their maker and trust instead in their well-fortified palaces and well-fortified towns. And in chapter 9, we see that one of the consequences for their lack of loyal love was their barren harvest. In the early days of Israel's history in the wilderness, the Lord took great delight in his people as one who rejoices to find grapes in a desert. However, when the people came to that specific place named in the text, Baal Peor, where they worshiped Baal and committed ritual sex with the Moabite and Midianite women, that's in Numbers 25, they became as detestable to God as the idols they loved. This first instance of Baal worship kind of set the pattern of Israel's idolatry that followed them into the land and resulted in their present judgment. But this misguided thinking of the Israelites continues on in chapter 10, telling us that when Israel prospered, the people built idols to false gods instead of to the one true God. So now the punishment would fit the crime. Their calf idol in Beth Avon, uh, the one that they worshiped, would be taken to Assyria, the idol that was one of the two that were set up in Bethel and Dan by Jeroboam. This was the same one that was taken away. So God says, if you're not going to worship me, you're going to worship other gods, I'm just going to take your gods away. You move into chapter 11, and you find that Israel is the disobedient son who departed from God to serve idols. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that Matthew 2.15 quotes from Hosea 11.1 in context of Jesus. And the analogy that Matthew was trying to make from the book of Hosea is that Jesus is the embodiment of all that Israel's God's son should have been. Jesus succeeded where the nation of the whole where the nation as a whole had failed. Now the third and last charge against Israel, no faithfulness to God is developed from chapter 11 verse 12 to the end of the book. Israel was guilty of lying and deception and this was in direct contrast to God who is faithful. And in chapter 12, Hosea highlights Israel's history of unfaithfulness, especially in her dealing with other nations. She's defrauded them, as she had also attempted to do in her relationship with God. And in view of Israel's continued behavior, chapter 13 tells us that the Lord promised to become an enemy of his people. He uses well-known animal imagery like a lion or a leopard that is lays in wait to attack sheep grazing in a pasture. He would confront them as a mother bear crazed by the loss of her cubs. He would tear them open like a bear and consume them like a lioness. The lion, the bear, and the leopard were all wild animals that were known for their relentless manner in which they would kill their prey. And even though God would attack his people like a wild animal because of their sin, he said that he would redeem them from death. You see, judgment for Israel was definitely in the near future of Hosea's day. But death would not be the end of the road for the nation of Israel. Death and um, death and the grave are not the final home of a believer. God has a glorious future for them beyond the grave for those who put their faith in him. But to me, the book of Hosea ends on a beautiful note. Despite all the stubbornness and wickedness of God's people in chapter 14, like a rainbow after the storm, this chapter promises Israel's final restoration in the future. Here's the full extent of God's unfailing love for his faithless people, the triumph of his amazing grace, and the assurance of his complete and final healing. All this imagery describes the indescribable heart of a loving God. But while God is a loving God, he still expects us to do our part. So don't forget to pay attention to the last verse of the book. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and the righteous people live by walking in them. Well, that finishes Hosea, and now on to our next book, which is the book of Joel. 
and a few things to keep in mind when reading through Joel. First, Joel's main audience was the southern kingdom, and it's likely that he was living in or near Jerusalem. Second, the day of the Lord is a phrase that shows up in Joel. We must understand that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. When Joel uses the day of the Lord terminology, sometimes he's referring to judgment that is coming in his historical time. Other times he is referring to judgment that is coming in the future. Third, a major lesson from the book is that God is enthroned in heaven and he is actively ruling over the affairs of humanity. However, the way in which he rules is characterized by grace. Grace is at the heart of God's government over humanity. Joel is only three chapters long and you will read it all in one sitting. Chapter one tells us about a locust plague in Joel's day. Joel reports that this locust invasion was unique and that no one seems to be able to remember such destruction from locusts. People would therefore have no offerings to bring to the Lord, and this denied them access to God at the very time that they needed it the most. And so Joel calls on the people to repent in sackcloth and ashes, to get on their faces and ask for forgiveness and deliverance from the Lord. Well, while the devastation of the locust plague was fresh in their mind, in chapter 2, Joel called on the watchmen to sound their alarms. Joel describes invaders in languages in language that brings back memories of the locusts. But Joel distinguishes this invading army from the previous army of locusts. Joel's point was not that the day of the Lord had arrived, but that it was near in the sense that it was imminent and could come at any time. Joel is referring to an attack by some enemy in his day that had not happened yet. Again, like after the locust invasion, Joel called on his people, called on the people rather, to repent and return to God. And sometimes God brings problems into our lives to get our attention and to prod us to turn back to Him. We can return to the Lord with assurance that He will hear and forgive us if we willingly confess our sins. Now, the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, Joel describes another day, another day of the Lord. This one would be a far future one during the end times. In this future time, God will restore His people and judge the nations completely and fully. God's return in power and blessing will transform the land of Israel and the people. Well, we could spend a whole lot more time on Joel, but our time is fleeting and we need to get to the book of Amos, which is a bit longer than the book of Joel. So let's go on to the book of Amos. Uh, A few things to keep in mind when reading Amos. First, Amos was both a farmer and a rancher. Um, We might call him a country prophet, as others have called him. Uh, second, his hometown of Tekoa was only 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Third, Amos's natural surroundings had a profound effect on him and his writings. Fourth, although Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah, God called him to announce his prophetic messages to the northern kingdom as well. So Amos was, uh, excuse me, Amos' way on winning the people's attention was to announce judgment on Israel's enemies. The people would have no problems listening to him speak of how God would punish the nations around them. And so this is exactly what Amos does in the first two chapters of his book. He prophesies judgment against eight specific nations and their dealings against the nation of Israel. And after he's finished with Israel's enemies, then he turns around and points the finger at Israel in chapters 3 through 6. And in a series of three sermons, he stresses Israel's coming judgment because of their sins. The sermon in chapter 3 is directed toward Israel's position. Israel's sin was heightened because of her position before God. And with that greater privilege of being chosen by God came greater responsibility. The people simply did not know how to do right. The sermon in chapter 4 
concerned the depravity of Israel. It focused on the stubbornness of the people. Amos characterized the women of Samaria as cattle grazing in the region of Bashan. Bashan was known for its fat, well-fed cattle. And these women only cared for their material needs and were willing to oppress the poor to satisfy themselves. Now, as far as the men go, Amos chastised them for their religious apostasy and hypocrisy. He said the men of Israel go to Bethel to sin, or they'll go to Gilgal to sin yet more. These men boasted about their spirituality, but they refused to submit to God. And because of their refusal, Israel was told to, quote, prepare to meet your God. Chapter 4, verse 12. That's actually where that quote comes from, from the book of Amos, if you ever hear that adage. Now, the last sermon that Moses, excuse me, that Amos preaches is in chapters 5 and 6. And Amos begins this last sermon as a funeral lament. God's coming judgment was so certain that Amos was already talking about Israel's death. He prophesied that only 10% of the people would be left in the land by the time all the judgment was over. And he continued to invite the Israelites to repent and to serve the one true God, warning them that not, uh, warning them to not continue in their idolatrous ways. The people had become complacent. They needed to heed the lesson of other cities and other countries that God had allowed to fall. They were not exempt from God's reach. None of us, even today, are exempt from God's reach. Now, in chapter 7 through 9, Amos has five visions of judgment. The first two visions are of a locust plague and of a devastating fire, and they were given to demonstrate that terrible nature of God's judgment. The third vision in chapter 7 through 9 is that of a plumb line. Now, a plumb line is used to determine if a wall is truly vertical. It sets the standard again against which the wall or another structure is measured vertically. This is important. We're not talking about a level because a level measures an object horizontally. But Amos used a plumb line, which is vertical. He was showing the people how far they were off in their relationship to God's laws, which is vertical, up and down. Therefore, it was revealing how much judgment was needed to correct them and to get them back into plumb. The fourth vision in chapter 8 was a basket of fruit that was full and ripe. And this emphasized the imminency of God's judgment. God's judgment could not be delayed any longer. It was ready to happen. And judgment came on Israel less than 40 years later. Now, the final vision in chapter 9 pictured the Lord as striking the top of a false temple at Bethel. He struck it so hard that there was an earthquake. It trembled all over and then collapsed on those who were inside it. And this pictures a final and complete judgment of the northern kingdom. Now, virtually all of Amos is a message of judgment. But like other prophets, an encouraging word of future restoration is always near. The last part of chapter 9 looks forward to a time when God will one day fulfill his covenant promises with Israel. Israel is assured that in that great future day of the Lord, the Davidic dynasty will be restored and Israel will return to live permanently on the land promised to her. Now, as we finish up for this week and go into next week from a lot of these modern prophets, you find this constant theme of these prophets always reminding the people of their sins, always trying to bring them back. You know, I'm more convinced than anything else that much of these prophets' jobs was simply reminding the people of what God has already said. A lot of the sins they're committing are the same ones over and over and over again. You know, as the prophets in the Old Testament and as the preachers in the New Testament, we are simply reminding God's people of what they already know, of what God's Word already says. 
And we can remind people until we are blue in the face, like these prophets in the Old Testament and the preachers in the New Testament do. But it's not until the people actually repent and make a decision on their own will they ever change their ways. Now that's all we have time for this week. Email any questions you have to BibleReadingLBC.org. And guess what? Next week, we will finish the rest of the Old Testament. And then we'll get into the New Testament. So I will talk with you all next week.